Judges is kind of a, a nitty-gritty, uh, often brutal book of the Bible. Judges is filled with sin and violence and judgment of God's people and of God's enemies. Judges, if I wanted to compare it to a movie, Judges would be more like an action or war movie that might appeal to men as opposed to a romantic comedy that might appeal to women. But while this book may appeal to men more than women, Judges is actually a book that elevates the position of women amongst God's people. Today, we're going to be introduced to two women that God used mightily for his glory. One of the women was a respected leader. The other one was a simple homemaker. Today, we're going to see how God used a courageous, faithful mama bear. Have we got any mama bears in the house today? Amen. I know we do. Amen. Well, today we're going to see how God used this courageous, faithful mama bear named Deborah to uh, bring freedom from the bondage of God's enemies. And listen, if you're listening, say amen. God still uses women for his glory every single day. God still uses women for his glory every single day. So friends, as we focus on this one courageous mama bear, Deborah, we have to begin by recognizing that once again, God's people had lapsed into spiritual failure. I want you to see this morning the spiritual conditions that existed when Deborah became a judge. First of all, we notice that God's people were corrupted. Page 220 in the Bible's in front of you, Judges chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. When Ahud was dead, the children of Israel again, say again, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. You remember after Ahud ran his dagger into the belly of that wicked king Eglon, there was peace in Israel for 80 years. For eight decades there was peace in Israel. And as long as Ahud lived, and as long as the people of Israel followed God, then the people enjoyed relative peace in the nation. But when Ahud died, the people had no leader to direct them. They had no leader to guide them. They had no leader to tell them the truth. And so what did God's people do? They turned their backs on God, and they began to worship the gods of the Canaanite people. What a slap in the face to God that would be. After he had granted them 80 years of peace with a solid leader, The minute that he was gone, God's people would leave. But before we rush to judgment, let us also realize that this is a picture of what happens all too often in churches 
today. Think about it. How often have we heard about people who follow God for a while and then maybe a parent passes away? Maybe a preacher leaves. Or maybe some other drastic event happens in their life. And then what do they do? They turn away from God and they start doing what is right in their own eyes. Now I tell you this from my personal life experience. When Bill Barlow was 18 years old, he just graduated high school and his mom and his stepfather were divorced. So Bill and his brother Eric followed mom to Orlando and after leaving his church that he grew up in, the only church he'd ever known, Bill Barlow did what was right in his own eyes for 17 years. 17 years. You see, that's how God's people get corrupted again. They allow life's events to tear them away from God. But when God's people were corrupted, we also see that God's people got corrected. Look in verse 2. So the Lord sold them. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth, Hagawim. When God's people walked away from God, I wonder, did God walk away from his people? The answer is, nope, he sure didn't. When God's people rebelled against God, what did God do? God sold them into the hands of of his enemies. Now that may sound like God walked away from him, but he didn't. When God's people turned their backs on him, what God did was lovingly discipline his people. Can I tell you that there is still a very high price to pay for disobedience to God's will. When we choose our ways over his ways, when we choose to follow the gods of this land over him, we can expect God's displeasure. When we follow our ways over his ways and follow the gods of the land rather than him, can I tell you that we can also expect God's discipline. If I choose to continue in my sin, I can expect God to react and touch my life in a way that I ain't going to like. For example, if I continue in my sin, I might could expect God to touch my flesh. He might touch my flesh through sickness or some other sorrow. That's not to say that every sickness and every sorrow comes from a result of discipline. We know that we live in a fallen world amongst fallen people in fallen bodies. We know that. But sometimes God's going to get my attention. By touching my flesh. If I continue in my sins, God very well touched me in my family. He may use my family to get my attention to draw me back to Him. If I continue in my sin, God very well may touch my finances. He very well may bring me to the place of want so I know that I need Him more than anything. 
if I continue in my sin, God may not only touch my flesh, may not only touch my family, may not only touch my finances, He very well may touch my future, allowing me to reap the consequences that I have sown. Now, friend, I don't know how God's going to work in your life. But here's what I do know. I do know that He is going to work in your life. Amen. And I do know, friend, that whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. We learn this in Hebrews chapter 12 where the author gives us kind of an earthly analogy. In verse 9 of Hebrews 12, the Bible says, Furthermore, we've all had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them much respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But He, but God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of holiness. Friend, do you see that relationship there? The relationship between God's chastening and our holiness. God wants us to be holy. He wants us to live holy lives, and therefore He will correct us so that we can live in holiness. Well, after the Lord's correction, once again, God's people did what? They cried out. Look in verse 3. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin had 900 chariots. 900 chariots of iron. And for 20 years, for 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now you may remember, before Othniel, the first judge, God's people were disciplined for eight years. Before Ahud, the second judge, God's people were disciplined for 18 years. And now we find in verse 3 that God's people had been disciplined for 20 years. Are you seeing a pattern? If you don't learn the lesson now, we'll just add to it until you learn the lesson. Amen? As far as Israel was concerned, this Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, was an undefeatable king. His powerful army possessed 900 iron chariots. And so God's people just felt helpless. We know that they were weaponless, and we know they felt that they were no match for this king. They were people without hope. Have you ever felt as though you had no hope? That's a horrible place to be. But I want to challenge you that in your hopelessness that you will do what Israel did because in their hopelessness, what did they do? They called on God. Amen? And when they called on God, guess what happened? God heard them. He heard them. But notice that when God's people cried out to God, they didn't cry out wanting to be changed they didn't cry out in repentance. What did they cry out from? They wanted to be delivered from their problems. Amen? So it wasn't that they wanted to change. They just wanted to be delivered from their problems. 
When will God's people ever learn? When will they ever learn that walking with God and honoring His Word brings blessings? But sin and defiance brings judgment. It's as simple as that. You see, many Christians today still haven't learned that lesson. They still haven't learned that lesson. They call on the Lord. Oh, Lord, deliver me from this problem. While they fail to deal with the root of their problem, which is sin. Their sin. So, friend, if we really want to be delivered from the burdens and from the pain and from the problems, if we really want to be delivered, if we really want to avoid the discipline to come, what you have to do is deal honestly with your sin before God. You've got to get right. Amen? So that's a personal challenge to you. Our goal should not just be to escape the problem. No, our goal should be to be found pleasing to the Lord. That's what we should want. We should not be wanting just an easier time in life. No, our goal should be to be right with the Lord in every, say every, in every area of life. He wants us to be found right in every area of life. Friend, if we would ever just seek the Lord's will above everything else, get to the point where there's nothing more important than the will of God in my life, then we could be spared many, many hardships. So, after lapsing into the spiritual failure, God stepped in. God stepped in and God sent his girl. God stepped in, he sent his girl, Deborah, for a very special function. Now let's learn who Deborah was. What is her position? Well, in verse 4, the Bible says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Hmm, that's personal. Between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we learn that Deborah had a twofold position. She was a prophetess, but she was also a judge. As a prophetess, Deborah would receive a direct revelation from God. And she was told to share that revelation with God's people. Now, as a judge, she was God's chosen instrument of the day. She was God's girl to go and spare God's people from the torment of their own rebellion. You know, in chapter 5, Deborah calls herself the mother of Israel. The mother of God's people. What a responsibility to be the mother of God's people. You see, that's what mamas do. Sometimes mamas help children from their own repercussions of their own sin. Sometimes mamas step in to protect their children from themselves. And that's exactly what Deborah was doing. But not only do we see Deborah's position, but then we see in verse 6 that Deborah gives a prophecy. She gives a direct revelation from God. Uh, in verse 6, check this out. Then Deborah sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Word straight from God. Here it comes. 
Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulon, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and with his multitudes. But get this, where? At the Kishon River. That's important, I'll tell you later. At the Kishon River, and I will deliver him into your hand. God was telling Deborah, I'm going to deliver your enemy into your hand. So she receives a word from God. She calls Barak, and she calls him to take these 10,000 soldiers and to go to war with the Canaanite general. Deborah tells Barak that God has promised victory over Sisera, that Canaanite general, and they'll win if they will just trust God and go to war. If they'll just trust God and put up a fight. She agrees, but then she has a problem. Look in verse 8 at Deborah's problem. And Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, then I'm not going. And so Deborah said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you're taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So after Deborah shares this word from God with Barak, it seems like to me that Barak is shaking in his shoes. Barak is scared to death. And he's only willing to put up a fight if Deborah will fight with him. She agrees, but she reminds him. She says, if the victory depends on a woman, then guess where the glory is going to go? The glory is going to go to a woman as well. So we know Deborah's position, prophetess and judge. We know that she had a prophecy that God said, you'll win this victory. But we also know that there's a problem, and it was the men. Imagine that. Amen. But I want you to notice who Deborah's real partners were. And it wasn't Barak. Deborah's partners was God and another woman named Jael. Check this out in verse 10. In verse 10, And Barak called the nation of Zebulun and the tribe of Zephtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, Heber the Kenite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites. Heber was a traitor. Heber was a traitor of God's people. And he pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. And so Sisera, the enemy general, gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim, and look where they went, to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! Get up! Up! 
For this is the day which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera, the enemy general. And with his, all of his chariots and all of his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot. Sisera bailed out of his chariot. And he fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagawim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera, the enemy general, had fled away on foot to the tent of a woman named Jael. Jael, who was the wife of Heber, the traitor, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and Heber, and Jael went out to meet the enemy of God's people, Sisera, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, she said. Turn aside and turn and come inside. Do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him up with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And so she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. And then he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. And then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg. Now, a tent peg was about this size. Amen? They were put in an angle like that, and the ropes held up the tent. You've seen them before in the movies. Jael took a tent peg, and she took a hammer in the other hand, and she went softly to him, and she drove that peg into his temple. And it went down to the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, and so he died. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out of the tent to meet him. And she said to him, Come, and I'll show you the man you seek. I'll show you the man that you seek. And when he went to her in her tent, there lay Sisera, dead, with a tent peg in his temple. And so on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin the king of Canaan. So, here's what we got. We got Barak and Deborah and 10,000 men from the tribes of Nathali and Zebulun, and they went to war, and they defeated Sisera and all the Canaanite soldiers. Now, how in the world did they do that? Well, in chapter 5, verse 21, we get a hint. Chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. So here's what happened. 
as they were fighting near the Kishon River, God allowed that river to overflow its banks, and those 900 iron chariots fell to their greatest enemy. Do you know what the greatest enemy of an iron chariot is? Mud. Mud. All those chariots got stuck in the mud and the soldiers were just swept away in the torrents of the Kishon River. And the rest of the soldiers we know die at the edge of Israeli swords. And so what happened was is they trusted God in his word. They went down to the Kishon River and God gave them a great victory. Friends, it wasn't just a win. God said, the Bible says, it was a rout. Amen? There is a difference. So seeing that the army had been routed, what did Sisera do? He flees the battlefield on foot, and he encounters a tent kept by this simple homemaker, Jael. Boy, she was a simple homemaker, wasn't she? Amen? Wow. So Jael recognizes that Sisera is the enemy general. She recognizes that and recognizes that he's out of breath. He's running away. And she invites him to come on into the tent. And so she gives him a drink and she helps him hide from the enemy that's chasing her, chasing him. So while Cicero was hiding, J.L. covered him up with a blanket. And J.L. takes this two-foot tent peg and hammers it through the temple of that enemy general. Drives it all the way through his temple, all the way in to the ground. And the great Canaanite general is D-E-A-D. -E she took what she had and defeated that Canaanite enemy. We thank God for women who can swing a hammer, amen? But you know what? We also thank God for women who take a stand. We thank God for women who take a stand against the enemies of God. We thank God for women who are willing to fight for what's right. We thank God for women who understand what is at stake. No pun intended, amen? We thank God for women who love God and love people enough to do what's necessary to win the spiritual battles that we face day in and day out. Lord, we thank you for our women. So let me just stop here. And let me say a word about the women in our church. I say this without condescension, and with the utmost respect, women fulfill a vital role in God's kingdom work at Bethel Baptist Church. Vital role. If all the women were removed from Bethel Baptist Church, the work of the church at Bethel would come to a screeching halt. That's how important the women of Bethel I mean, it's women who, for the most part, are the ones teaching our children. So the future of the church rests with the women. 
It's women who, for the most part, are the ones who have enough heartfelt compassion to drive our outreach ministries. It's the women who, for the most part, are the ones who recognize the importance of providing a meal to a grieving family. Women, for the most part, the wives and the moms are the ones responsible for getting their families here every day, every Sunday. It's the moms. It's the wives. It's the women who have such a vision for God's house that it's always tastefully decorated. It's always clean. And it's always ready for the ministries of the church. And as long as we're being honest, for the most part, we just have to admit, guys, women are more dependable than men when it comes to the work of the Lord's church. They're just more dependable. I thank God for the godly, active women in our church family. The ones that are here today and the ones that are online today. So after God's people had lapsed into the spiritual failure, and after God sent his girl, Deborah, for a special function, God's victory resulted in a song of faith. See, after the victory over Sisera, Brother Hal, Deborah and Barak commenced the singing. They commenced the singing, and we find the lyrics to their song in Judges chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to read that whole song to you, but I want to tell you what they were doing. They were praising God who gave them the victory over their enemy. They praised God for his virtues. Things like unity. They praised God for the unity to raise up an army. To raise up people who were willing to fight against the enemies of God. Just look at what they said in verse 2. When the leaders lead in Israel. See, a lot of times there's leaders in the church, but they're not leading when the leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. He reiterates that in verse 9. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. They offered praises to God for the unity he provided. But they also praised God for his faithfulness. They praise God that God would never leave them, that God would never forsake them. They praise God for sending Deborah, the leader, the mother of Israel, in verse 7. They praise God for his righteousness toward his people. In verse 11, he talks about the fact that they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord. That's what we do on Sundays. They shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Can I tell you, friend, in case you don't know it, there is ample reason for you to be praising God today. You may be going through hell and high water. You may be going through the most difficult challenge of your life. But there is ample reason for you to be praising God. What you have to do is you have to stop. 
You have to pause in the middle of your suffering. You have to pause in the middle of your pain. You have to stop and you have to take inventory. You have to take inventory in your life. And you have to ask yourself this question. Has God been good to me? I ask you that today. Has God been good to you? Has God been good to you? Has God provided forgiveness for your sins? Has God provided his only begotten son to pay the penalty for your sins? Has God provided redemption so that you can be reconciled with him again? Has God provided you with the promise of heaven for all eternity? With the Father of creation? Friend, are you saved? If you're saved, God's been good to you. Amen. Are you blessed beyond words? You need to be able to say that today. Because you are. The, word is wor the Lord is worthy of our love. He's worthy of our worship. And He's worthy of our praise. Many, many virtues of God. But they also praise God for his volunteers. You see, when called, when they were called, many of God's people refused to go to war. When they were called to stand up and fight, many of them refused to put up a fight. The majority, the majority of the work was being carried out by a minority of the people. Such is the case today in many situations. The call has gone out, friend, to tell the world about Jesus, but few do. The call has gone out for you and I to take our stand against evil. But how many of us find it easier just to go with the flow? Go with the flow of the world. The call has come for us to rally ourselves together and to fight the good fight of faith, but few answer that call. I thank God for those who are willing to serve the Lord. I thank God for those who can be counted on to teach the word, to sing God's praises, to give to God's work, to pray for God's will to worship Him together and to be a godly influence in our community. I thank God for you. I'm just believing. I just believe that God still blesses those who put up a fight and who are willing to work with Him. So they praise God for His virtues. They praise, praise God for the volunteers but they also praised God for his victory. The enemy had been defeated soundly. But can I tell you that the enemy had been defeated only by the power of God. The Israelites had no hope. They had no weapons. Severely outmatched by Sisera and his armies. God provided the victory. How did he do it? He sent the rain. He sent the rain on the Kishon River, and the Kishon River overflowed, and all those 900 iron chariots got stuck and were worthless to the enemy army. Think about this. One little raindrop, y'all. 
one little raindrop is tiny and it's fragile. But you put that one little raindrop with about a million other raindrops and you know what you got? You got an overflowing Kishin River is what you got. You got victory when we come together. That's called a shower of great power, amen? One raindrop with many other raindrops. Friend of our world today, we wonder, could we ever see that kind of victory? Could we ever see such a thing? Well, I want to tell you that if we'll stand together, if we'll fight the good fight of faith, I believe that God will empower us to be victorious in every battle we fight in ways that you've never dreamed of before. You see, it's not about the numbers in our army. It's not about the number of chariots we got or the wealth we have or don't have. It's not about the ability that you and I have that gets the job done. It's all about the power of God. He brings the victory. And verse 31 closes out the story and the song of Deborah. Let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. And so the land had rest for 40 years. You see, as surely as every enemy of God will be destroyed, so too will every faithful saint of God shine with the glory of God one day. One day it's coming. So friend, when the way gets weary, when that path gets steep, when you wonder, there, is there little reason from a human standpoint that I should carry on? I want to tell you there is. There is great reason for you to carry on being the faithful servant of God he's called you to be. Because one day, one day Jesus is coming. One day, Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he's going to be taking his children with him. And when we get there, we're going to stand before him, and we're going to give an account of every way that we have served him or not. On that day, friend, if you have been a faithful steward of what God's given you, the Bible says that we will receive rewards. You will receive a reward for every single thing that you've ever done for His glory. Everything else can be burned up. You'll never hear about it again. It's going to be burned up. Others who have lived for themselves all their lives, well, they've already received their reward, haven't they? How do you know, Bill? Well, I've read the end of the book. And in Revelation chapter 22, the Lord Jesus is speaking. And here's what he says. In verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly. I've been hearing that for hundreds and hundreds of years, that Jesus is coming quickly, and he still ain't here. What's the deal? It don't mean that he's coming soon. It means that when he comes, 
coming quickly. You will not have time to prepare. You will not have time to say, oh, I want to serve Jesus now. I want to serve the Lord now. No, he'll be coming quickly. There'll be no time to prepare. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter into the gates of the city. See, one day Jesus is coming. And there'll be no, no time for you to prepare. The time to prepare is now. The time to serve Jesus is now. And when he comes, Jesus will balance the books. When he comes, friend, it's all going to be worth it for the servant of God. What man here today would be willing to pray a prayer of thanks for all the godly women who are our mothers, our wives, our daughters, our sisters in Christ, and our fellow servants in the Lord's house here. What man would be willing to pray today? But Tim, come on up, buddy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today just in a, a spirit of thankfulness for the women of our church mm. and the women of all of our family and the examples that they show and the leadership that they put forward each and every day. We ask that you continue to keep each one of them strong, keep each one of them dedicated in whatever their chosen task is in serving you yes. and just continue to bless them, continue to bless our church. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I also want to share with you a dream.